Welcome back to part two of the podcast, where we get to know more about our guest and their path into the world of data science, machine learning, and oil and gas. We're back with Matt Morris. Matt, thank you again for joining us. And do you mind telling us a little bit more? I know you mentioned kind of the brief highlights, but a little bit more about your background and how you kind of started segueing into data science. Sure. Well, I didn't grow up in the oil patch. I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, and I came out of school with degrees in, in math and geophysics. And so the, the natural home for me is an oil company. And that's what brought me to Houston uh, 20 years ago. Uh, and ever since, I've been working with Anadarko. So I started off, like, like most, most young geoscientists do, drilling wells, U.S. onshore. Uh, it's a nice, cheap place to make mistakes. And, and I made my fair share of mistakes when I was uh, new. Uh, and I worked my way up the te technical ladder here at Anadarko. And prior to getting into machine learning, my previous role was in our risk consistency team. Uh, so our role was to oversee the, the exploration portfolio at Anadarko and to make sure that the, uh, all of the interpretations that were performed on the, on the logs and the seismic data was done in a consistent manner. So our management had assurances that any capital they allocated to any of the projects uh, was being judged on a level playing field. So that gave me a, a really a great opportunity to see a lot of interpretations across the company. Lots of good ones and uh, occasional poor one. Interpretations? What, do you, what are those exactly? Right. So we're looking at data. And there's a lot of things you can tell from the data. But there's a lot of things you can't tell from the data. So at that point, we have to rely on our mental models. And we have to interpret what we think we see in between the data points. And so there, there's room to be, to be optimistic. This is going to be like seismic data again? or Yeah, this is geotechnical data. Seismic data, well logs, things of that nature. So there's lots of room to be optimistic. And in fact, you have to be optimistic if you want to find new oil. But we want to make sure that people are all, be, all being reasonable. So there's room to be optimistic, but there's also room to be pessimistic. And we want to make sure we capture all of those possibilities in our probabilistic distributions. Yeah, so as you started kind of becoming more and more senior, all of these data sets that were analyzed and annotated and where you were looking for different you were kind of mapping the earth out with all these data sets and you were sort of double looking at them and making sure that everything was kind of consistent. And you also were seeing a lot of different people annotating these data sets in different ways or in similar or different ways. That's right. And that's really important when it comes to machine learning because the machine is only going to get exposed to a handful of labels. So you really want to make sure those labels are high quality, accurate and clean and conform to the all of the geological rules that we've learned over the years. So you've had a long career in oil and gas and you've seen a lot of different things and you've had different roles and becoming more and more senior. Were you planning on getting into the data science machine learning track or how did that end up coming up that you became so closely involved with data science and machine learning? Oh, absolutely not planning on it. Okay, so there's this commercial. You've probably seen it. It's for contacts. And I, th I think it's 1-800-CONTACTS, but the gist is, is, hey, order your contacts online. We'll ship them to you uh, cheaper than you can buy them uh, at the store. And there's a guy, and he says, no, 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 not my eyes. My eyes are special. You're not going to have the contacts that I need. Okay. 
right? So that's the sort of way I felt yeah. about my data. Okay. My data is too complicated, too expensive, <laughs> uh, too special for machine learning to work on it. Sure, it can work on cats on the internet, but is it really going to work on seismic data? And my answer was a resounding no when I started this group and I started doing R&D in this group. Uh, but then something happened. We hired some legit data scientists who do this for a living. And like most people who are applying machine learning to seismic data, we first started with faults. How skeptical were you exactly? So it sounds like you were pretty skeptical. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I did not think this was going to work at all. So you hand some seismic data and you, you're thinking the problems that we work on, it's just not going to be done by, by a machine. That's right. The, the Earth is a really difficult system. Uh, it's, it's not finite and bounded like a lot of the problems the data scientists are used to working on. Like with those problems you mentioned, like cat pictures and, and faces. That's right. There's only so many ways that you can put together a person's face. Uh, but when I think about all the different ways that the Earth comes apart and gets put back together, it's it's just uh, many orders of magnitude more difficult. Okay, so you were very skeptical. It's way more complicated than the, some faces. It's all the data is totally heterogeneous. And then what happened? Things, well, things changed. That's right. As I was saying, we hired some legit data scientists. Uh, and their course of study as they were coming out of school was deep learning. And this has only been a thing for the past six or seven years. So when I was coming through school, this, this sort of technology flat out didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So we applied these techniques to my special data. Uh -huh. And yeah. I got to say, I was pretty flabbergasted that it worked as well as it did. Uh -huh. How did that start exactly? What, what was the trajectory of that starting where it kind of came from nothing to then, to then something? You would start with maybe like one problem and then it and then be flabbergasted at a second problem or? Yeah, happen? the first problem was unique. Because I didn't think it was going to work, I figured I was going to have to handhold everybody uh, <laughs> to bring them to a solution. So I spent my first summer in this group building a data set of expert labels. And I spent a lot of time at it. I had We had a lot of meetings at, at the time, and I, I would go to the meetings in my day, in the day, and then I would go home at night and I would label seismic data. And, and I think I logged about 100 hours of sitting in front of a workstation uh, creating labels for, this, for, the, for the machine before we ever did our first prediction. And then we got around to doing our first prediction, and it was really exquisite. I mean, it looked just like a person had done it. And I said, oh, this might actually work. Okay. <laughs> so yep. the next question is, okay, well, I just spent an entire summer labeling a data set. That's not viable. How... How little, how, what's the minimum amount of data we can provide to the machine before it can make a good prediction? So we started, say, pulling legs out from under the table. And uh, what we found is, yeah, you only really need to label 1%, maybe half a percent of your data. And that's all you really need. And so over the years, you just keep feeding more and more problems uh, at these tools. Yeah, that's right. We, we didn't just stop with faults. Uh, we spun that up into a service organization. And then they uh, here in the H, we have a team who's focused on predicting faults from seismic data sets uh, at a commercial scale. Uh, but we didn't want to stop right there because we have a technology that, that generalizes. Uh, it's going to work on lots of features on the seismic data. 
So we've been slowly asking more and more of the technology. We're getting more fuzzier problems. We're asking it to detect features that are not as, say, unambiguous as a fault. Uh, and that's what brings us to these MTCs that we're working on today. And you have that, let's say those first those first problems, those let's say low-hanging fruit problems, you you're flabbergasted, it works so well. And then each of these next problems you keep hitting it with, how's how's that going? Working pretty well? Well, it's working. Um, it's not as brilliant as our first attempt out of the gate, but what I'm seeing is that there's value here. So what what I think uh, where we're at today is that the machine and the person working together is gonna be greater than anyone by themselves. Uh, so we turn over some labels to the machine. It does a first pass to try to make it uh, an attempt at inferring where all these objects are, but then we still need the expert in the loop to react to it and reject the, the things that are not quite right and reinforce the things that are right. So how do you see the future going now? You started, you weren't even considering data science and machine learning. You started into it and you now are convinced of the value and you see it working on all of these problems that you may not have expected it to work even as well as it does work. Now, where are we gonna go from here? Where are things going from this point? Well, first I'd point out that just because we have a new tool doesn't make doesn't mean that our older tools stop working. So a lot of the applications and the techniques that we've been perfecting over the past decades are still entirely valid. Uh, what we've got though now is a way to apply comp computers essentially to a whole new set of problems where beforehand it was just something that a person would have to slog through and do by hand. So you ask where we're heading, well I can think of uh, two big domains where things need to get better. Uh, right now the first one is we need better software because today the fact is, is you have to spend a lot of time labeling your data, you have to convert the data to a different format, you have to walk it down to your data scientist, uh, he or she has to do the training and the inference, give you back some uh, predictions, then we have to do another format conversion, bring it back into our workstation environment and react to it. It's a very long and tedious process. So we need a better software package to try to automate a lot of that, uh, that data management. Uh, and really we need to kick that, uh, that can over if we expect all of the geoscientists and the engineers uh, at the company to start extracting value from deep learning. The second thing we need is something we call global models. So a global model is a model that works on any data set you throw at it. And we, we just don't have that right now. What we have to do is provide a brand new set of labels for every new data set that we want to work on. And so we're actually creating extra work for the, for the uh, Petrotechs uh, when we ask them to train up a model. And so the ideal here is that we get to a point where we have neural networks that are fully global, where they can encounter a brand new data set that they've never seen and still deliver a result uh, that, that's gonna be useful. So this would be as opposed to kind of what it is right now, where essentially it's kind of like one problem, one neural network, is that fair to say? Yeah, that's true. We start from scratch every time we get a new data set in. So right now you get a new problem, come up with a new model, train the model, get the answer, another problem, and you just keep redoing this. But what you're talking about, is this, is the, the term transfer learning, does that come into here where you want some kind of learned model to tr transfer over to maybe a second model where you can transfer what it learned into that model or something yeah. along these lines? 
that transfer learning could be part of the solution. But what we've got is this weird power dynamic right now where, look, look, I'm lazy. I don't want to have to do any more work than I have to do. So I don't want to have to have to label a bunch of my data before a machine can take over. Uh, so nowadays, we're trying to optimize how much, what is the minimum amount of labeling we can do to get a viable result, right? Because that's, that's an extra step I want to reduce. Mm -hmm. But if we have a global model, uh, we turn that on its head and we have a new dynamic. At that point, we're going to try to throw every little bit of data that we have um, on hand into the, into the training regimen so that when we encounter the next new data set, it's seen something like the data that it's seen. So instead of trying to optimize on what's the minimum amount of training we do, we try to optimize on what's the maximum amount of, of training that can go into the global model. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you what. There's a problem there. Uh, subsurface data is really expensive. If you want a new wireline law, you got to new drill a new well, uh, and that could be ten million bucks onshore. Or it could be fifty million bucks offshore. Uh, if you want new seismic data, you got to shoot a new survey. And again, we're talking about millions of dollars on the line. So data, new data sets are not easy to come by in oil and gas, and really that goes back to one of my initial concerns with this technology. For Deep learning to work, you need a lot of examples, right? And so if you're of the opinion that we don't have enough data in oil and gas to train up a reliable model, I would say, well, maybe maybe we do. Maybe we only need 1% of a whole data set to get something useful out of it. So your pot at the end of the rainbow is instead of, let's say, one neural network per problem, your pot at the end of the rainbow is just one neural network for all problems? Well, I don't know if I'm that ambitious. I would say it's one neural network per feature instead of one neural network per data set per feature, right? So I'd like to have a single neural network that can detect faults on every data set you throw at it. Same thing with deep water channels or AVO anomalies or mass transport complexes. Um, because I think when we get that to that point, we can pass a single data set through multiple neural networks and we can start combining the outputs. And when you get to that point, you've got something really powerful. You've got more or less a pre-interpreted data set that's ready to go on day one. And see, that's that's where things can really tar start to change. Because where I'm coming from, I feel like the machine and the people are good at two different things. Uh, of course, the machines are good at repetition and doing rote computations over and over the same way. And we want that sort of uh, consistency in our data. But what machines are not good at are the things that people are good at. People are really good at inferring syntax when they're looking at incomplete data sets. People are also really good at synthesizing. And that means taking insights from one data set and another one and putting them together to come up with, with new sorts of insights. And so I feel like the combination of the machine doing all the heavy lifting for the for the rote repetitive detection uh, tasks, and then the person thinking about, hey, what does this all mean? Where should we put our capital? Um, where should we drill our wells? What's the subsurface risk? What's the political risk? Those sorts of fuzzy questions. Uh, I think that's where people can really excel. Some of these models and machine learning models, uh, neural networks will start to pick up small pieces, is that fair to say, of, of what the people are capable of? Because being able to transfer from one problem to another, 
does that kind of hit on some of the people characteristics like creativity and being able to react and things like that? Boy, I'm not sure. I mean, the neural networks are just looking for patterns in data. They don't really understand what the data means. And I mean that in like a navel gazing way, you know, what does this all mean in the grand scheme of things? They're just not doing that. They're just looking for simple patterns and data. So if you have a if you have a problem that's well suited to pattern searching, yeah, deep learning is the answer. But there are an awful lot of problems in the world which just don't lend themselves to that sort of dynamic. And I think that's the case where we still need people in the loop, and we're going to need people in the loop for a long time to come. For sure, for sure. So with that in mind, where do you see the future? let's say maybe five, 10 or 20 years, uh, where are these things gonna go? Are we going to start making progress on this, do you think, getting more towards these global networks? Oh, uh, no doubt we will at some point. I mean, there are entire industries and business, businesses being stood up on the backs of deep learning. I mean, it really is a, a fundamental innovation in the realm of computer science. And so of course it's going to permeate all of the industries that use computers to help them do their jobs. So five to 10 years, boy, I'll tell you where I'd like to be. I'd like to come off this, the top of this hype cycle where deep learning is the answer to everything. And I would like to see it just take its place in the list of tools that's available to professionals who have a job to do. Um, and so again, we're used to working with computers every day. They haven't taken people's jobs away. In fact, they've added a lot of jobs over the years. And I have no doubt that deep learning will follow along in that in that path. So as far as the end of the rainbow, these these global networks that you can apply to many different types of data sets instead of just training it on like one data set for one specific application, what steps are going to need to be taken for us to get from where we are now to where we can get to that point where it's not just on that one data set? I think you mentioned for instance, you're going to have to train them on like a lot more data instead of just on the one data set. Sure. Well, uh, it's not a single answer. Of course, we need more data. Uh, we need access to lots of data. Uh, and that's difficult because data has owners and rights and obligations uh, and, and all of those real world difficulties. Uh, next, we need a lot of labels and we need labels from experts who um, exercise diligence and care when they when they provide those labels for a machine to learn from. Uh, and the last thing we need is just good old fashioned innovation in the data science space. So GPUs are getting faster every year. We're able to do more sophisticated neural networks uh, where there's more and more RAM showing up on, on these GPU cards so we can, we can look at bigger images. This is just the sort of old fashioned stuff where R&D will, uh, will ascend and take its right place. I think it's just yet another way to try to explore the world for oil and gas. And I would leave it at that. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much for joining me for the podcast, Matt. Hey, it was a pleasure to be here.